welcome to the sixth episode of Go to Sleep. So it's been quite a while since our last episode, something like a month ago, I think. And uh, there are a, a variety of reasons for that. Um, but primarily it's because I have been out of town. Uh, and I thought that maybe I could record this show on the road from where I was, but that proved to not be possible. Uh, I've been, uh, since the last episode of this show, I guess I've been uh, around the United States and then in, in Thailand. And in, in all cases, um, it just wasn't going to make sense to be able to record, but I, I've really missed it. I, I, I find this show to be a very relaxing thing to do. I hope it's relaxing to listen to. So I'm really glad to be back. And, and now that I'm back, we should be able to resume a normal schedule. I'm not planning any, any more trips for quite a long time. I think I've mentioned previously on this show that, uh, that I'm getting married, um, in a few months. And so, uh, now that I'm back from the trips I was on, uh, wedding planning has gone into full gear around here. And so there just is not any time to do any more significant trips. I might go away for a weekend here or there or something like that, but nothing like, like I was doing. And, and that's a good thing. You know, it, it, it's wonderful to travel, but it's also nice to be at home. And we had, we do have a lot going on uh, with all of the, the wedding planning and it's exciting. It's, um, as anyone else who has already been through a, a wedding or maybe any kind of large event knows, it, it's really cool to see how it's all coming together as all the ideas that we have are, are kind of becoming more realities. Obviously, they won't really be real until until the day of, but we've got a lot going on. We're, um, we booked our venue... A while ago, so that we already had done, um, and it's a, uh, it's a, it's like an 1850s farmhouse on a bay, with a beach and a barn and all this beautiful stuff. So that's going to be amazing. And then um, now we've booked, uh, we booked our caterer, so we're doing a, a pizza truck, and there it's not actually a truck. They're going to bring up a, a a brick pizza oven and build. I guess it's not brick. They're going to build bring up a pizza oven and do pizzas on the spot, and the pizza's great, and I don't know, I, I like it because we're not really planning on having traditional seating, there'll be some limited spots for older folks, but mostly it'll be kind of sit where you can and, and stand, so having something like pizza where you can kind of hold it and eat it at the same time is, is really ideal, um, and we didn't want that kind of formal sit-down vibe, I mean, it's great, but it just wasn't what we were looking for. And, uh, and then we also have a, um, we booked a, a photo booth and it's a, uh, it's pretty cool. It's, um, it's a, like a classic VW bus that, uh, that will drive up and, and, um, people will be able to take photos in the bus. So that's really cool. And they, they, they have like a book set out for people to like paste their photos in for us and websites and all this kind of stuff though. The only kind of goofy part is that um uh 
you know, my, my fiance grew up in, in Germany, so she knows the correct way to say bus in German, and it's not Das Bus, which is the name of the bus that we rented. So there will be a lot of German people at the wedding, and I think that will be definitely interesting for them to see. I think they'll be a little confused by that, or maybe they'll just get a good laugh. I don't know. So we've got the the venue and the food and the and the um, the photo booth. So that's cool, and we uh, are now kind of considering some of the other things. Oh, we also have a photographer. Uh, a, a good friend of mine is a wedding photographer, and he's going to be doing our wedding. So that's really exciting as well. So it, it just feels like a lot of uh, bigger things are are coming into place. There's still so much left to do, but we did send out our save the date cards, which was a big milestone for us. And my fiance designed them. They look great. They're kind of photo booth themed as well. We love photo booths. Um, so yeah, it's uh, at the same time, it's, it's very far away and very, very close. So it's uh, it's a little, you know, it could be a little scary sometimes, but not like the the idea of getting married. I'm perfectly unscared of that, but the the uh, just all the work that needs to to happen before then, and all the planning. I I do not like planning. So yeah, so I'll continue to give updates as we go along, but that's kind of where the the wedding stuff is at right now. Um, other than that, not really that much going on. Like I said, it's nice to be home. Just kind of um, ramping back up into something like normal life. Uh, getting back on a schedule was the first main thing. and I've, I've mostly accomplished that now. But, you know, I, I tried to do it right when I got back. I thought, okay, I'll get over my jet lag and then I'll just, you know, I'll wake up in the morning one day and, and just structure my life and that'll be that'll be that. And it really doesn't work like that, at least not for me. I, I tried and, and failed. It was completely overwhelming. I don't know. Maybe some people can do it. I like structure, but it was just too much to go from complete freedom to complete structure. It's just it was not, uh, not going to work. So instead, I've kind of taken a slower approach with it, just uh, trying to get a little more done every day. I've been using a Todoist, which my fiance's sister, I think, found. Maybe she, maybe the fiance found it. I'm not sure. But anyway, we've been using it for all the wedding planning. And uh, I started using it for my own life as well. And that's been really helpful because even if I don't do the things that I schedule for myself to do, at least I know what I'm supposed to be doing, which is often a problem for me because I have a really, really bad memory for things that I need to do. So now... When I think of something that needs to get done, I just put it in there and then it lets me know when I said I needed to do it or just that it exists. Just even just like keeping something where you track all the things that you think of that you want to do is such a huge uh, advancement for me because I'll just, I'll think of it and I'll think I'll remember it and then it's just completely gone and it either never gets done or I have to be re-reminded about it by myself or somebody else at a later date and oftentimes it's um it's too late so so that's working really well but so i basically just been i made all these daily tasks right when i first started using it and uh and i don't think i've 
had a single day yet where I've completed all of those tasks, but I'm kind of adding them slowly and working my way up and, and I think I'll get there. And then of course, right when I do, I'll probably start a new job or take on a new project and everything will be blown right out of the water. But for now, it's uh, it's providing some kind of structure and it's nice because being home right now, you know, before I start anything new uh, all the time is hard. Sounds great, I know, but uh, both me and my fiance are home all the time and it just can get a little, we don't, you know, we have a pretty small house and uh, it can just, you know, it can be, the time can just kind of pass by without you realizing how much is gone. So, you know, you look at the calendar and suddenly it's, oh my gosh, it's the middle of December. How did that happen? Right? Where, where did the time go? And so I think without, without kind of focusing on what needs to get done and, and kind of having a plan of some kind, it can be just impossible to, uh, to achieve any kind of goals. And I, and I do have some pretty, pretty complicated goals, or at least I have quite a number of goals. So trying to get them and, you know, just trying to find the motivation as well, because it is, it's very easy to get kind of used to, you know, not accomplishing things. So working on that, uh, and with, you know, mixed, a mixed record of success, some things are going really well. Um, I'm still studying Japanese and that's going really well. Um, I'm still, uh, working on various projects, you know, my podcasts that I do or getting ready to interview for jobs is maybe the one that's being the hardest, but, uh, but I'm doing that too, just a little slower than I probably should be. So yeah, I don't know. It's uh it's an interesting time in my life. One thing that I've done recently that I'm really happy about is that uh, that I, I have trouble finding time to read. I, I assume this is probably true of a lot of folks out there. Um, you know, ever since the end of college, really, when, when no one was assigning me any kind of reading, and especially with the amount of reading that we all do every day on the Internet or in our lives, it's just really hard to, like, find time for just sort of what you might call pleasure reading or, or casual reading. And, uh, and I know I find it very, very difficult. And especially because, um, you know, for the, for the jazz podcast that I do, there's so much reading that I need to do, uh, that I, you know, it, it can be very hard to also find time to just sit down and read a book. So uh, what I've been doing lately, and this is not any kind of amazing idea. I think it's pretty, pretty standard, but it's been working really well for me is that uh, every night, right before I go to bed, I've just been taking 15, 20, 30 minutes, 45 at the most maybe, depending on what time I get to bed, to just read a book that I have sitting next to my bed. And, uh, and when I'm done, I go to bed. And it is working really, really well. Now, I'm, I'm very fortunate that my fiancé doesn't mind me uh, turning on the bedside lamp uh, while she's sleeping so that I can read. That's a huge advantage because I like to do it 
sort of in bed. It kind of gets me ready to go to sleep. Um, but, uh, but I mean, I've already finished one book that I've been trying to finish forever and, uh, and, and I'm making progress on a second one. So I don't know. I think this is probably here to stay. And, uh, I'm really happy about that. So that's kind of mostly what's been going on with me. Uh, I'm sure there's some things I'm forgetting and maybe I'll get to them next time. You know, I had a, a, such a long break on podcasts that I, maybe I had a lot more to talk about. I, maybe I'll talk about next time. I'll talk about um, where I went on my trips and uh, and how those were, things like that. But now for today, I'm going to get into the reading. And today, I'm going to be reading from a book called A Journey in Brazil. And uh, it looks like it was maybe published around 1867. So, I'm going to I'm going to read from that and uh I hope everyone has a great week. Our first Sunday at sea. The weather is delicious. The ship as steady as anything on the water can be. And even the most forlorn of our party have little excuse for seasickness. We have had service from Bishop Potter this morning, and since then we've been on deck reading, walking, watching a singular cloud, which the captain says is a cloud of smoke in the direction of Petersburg. We think it may be the smoke of a great decisive engagement going on while we sail peacefully along. What it means, or how the battle ends, if battle it be, we shall not know for two months, perhaps. Mr. Agassiz, is busy today in taking notes at regular intervals of the temperature of the water as we approach the Gulf Stream. Tonight we cut it at right angles, and he will remain on deck to continue his observations. The professor sat up last night as he intended and found his watch, which was shared by one or two of his young assistants very interesting. We crossed the Gulf Stream opposite Cape Hatteras at a latitude where it is comparatively narrow, some sixty miles only in breadth. Entering it at about six o'clock, we passed out of it a little after midnight. The western boundary of the warm waters stretching along the coast had a temperature of about 57 degrees. Immediately after entering it, the temperature began to rise gradually, the maximum being about 74 degrees, falling occasionally, however, when we passed through a cold streak to 68 degrees. These cold streaks in the Gulf Stream, which reached to a considerable depth, the warm and cold waters descending together in immediate contact for at least a hundred fathoms are attributed by Dr. Bach to the fact that the Gulf Stream is not stationary. It sways as a whole, sometimes a little toward the shore, sometimes a little away from it, and in consequence of this the colder water from the coast creeps in, forming these vertical layers in its midst. The eastern boundary is warmer than the western one, for the latter is chilled by the arctic currents which form a band of cold water all along the atlantic shore their influence is felt nearly to the latitude of florida on coming out of the gulf stream the temperature of the water was 68 degrees and so it continued for an hour longer after which mr agassiz ceased his observations today some of the gulf weed was gathered by a sailor and we found it crowded with life Hydroids in numbers had their home upon it, the delicate branching plumularia and a pretty campanularia, 
very like some of our New England species. Beside these, bryozoa, tiny compound mollusks, crusted its stem, and barnacles were abundant upon it. These are all the wonders that the deep has yielded us today, though the pretty Portuguese men of war go floating by the vessel, out of reach thus far. Such are the events of our life. We eat, and drink, and sleep, read, study Portuguese, and write up our journals. It has occurred to Mr. Agassiz, as a means of preparing the young men who accompany him for the work before them, to give a course of lectures on shipboard. Some preparation of the kind is the more necessary, since much of the work must be done independently of him, as it will be impossible for so large a party to travel together, and the instructions needed will be more easily given in a daily lecture to all than in separate conversations with each one singly. The idea finds general favor. The large saloon makes an excellent lecture room. A couple of leaves from the dining table with a black oil cloth stretched across them serve as a blackboard. The audience consists not only of our own company, but includes the few ladies who are on board, Mr. Bradbury, the captain of our steamer, Bishop Potter, some of the ship's officers, and a few additional passengers, all of whom seem to think the lecture a pleasant break in the monotony of a sea voyage. Today the subject was naturally suggested by the seaweeds of the Gulf Stream, so recently caught and so crowded with life. A lecture on the Gulf Stream in the Gulf Stream, as one of the listeners suggests. It was opened, however, by a few words on the exceptional character of the position of this scientific commission on board the Colorado. Fifty years ago, when naturalists carried their investigations to distant lands, either government was obliged to provide an expensive outfit for them, or if they had no such patronage, scanty opportunities, grudgingly given, might be granted them on ordinary conveyances. Even if such accommodation were allowed them, their presence was looked upon as a nuisance. No general interest was felt in their objects. It was much if they were permitted, on board some vessel, to have their bucket of specimens in a corner, which any sailor might kick over unreproved if it chanced to stand in his way. This ship, and the spirit prevailing in her command, opens to me a vista such as I had never dreamed of till I stood upon her deck. Here, in the place of the meager chances I remember in old times, the facilities could hardly be greater if the ship had been built as a scientific laboratory. If any such occasion has ever been known before, if any naturalist has ever been treated with such consideration and found such intelligent appreciation of its highest aims on board a merchant ship fitted up for purposes of trade, I am not aware of it. I hope the first trip of the Colorado will be remembered in the annals of science. I, at least, shall know whom to thank for an opportunity so unique. This voyage and the circumstances connected with it are, to me, the signs of a good time coming, when men of different interests will help each other, when naturalists will be more liberal and sailors more cultivated, and natural science and navigation will work hand in hand. And now for my lecture, my first lecture on shipboard. The lecture was given, of course, specimen in hand, the various inhabitants of the branch of seaweed giving their evidence and secession of their own structure and way of life. To these living illustrations were added drawings on the blackboard to show the transformations of the animals, their embryological history. Since the lecture, Captain Bradbury has fitted up a large tank as an aquarium, where any specimens taken during the voyage may be preserved and examined. Mr. Agassiz is perfectly happy. 
enjoying every hour of the voyage, as well he may, surrounded as he is with such considerate kindness. Though I took notes as usual of the lecture yesterday, I had not energy enough to enter them in my journal. The subject was the Gulf Stream, the stream itself this time, not the animals it carries along with it. Mr. Agassiz's late observations, though deeply interesting to himself, inasmuch as personal confirmation of facts already known is always satisfactory, have nothing novel nowadays. Yet the history of the facts connected with the discovery of the Gulf Stream and their gradual development is always attractive, and especially so to Americans, on account of its direct connection with scientific investigations carried on under our government. Mr. Agassiz gave a slight sketch of this in opening his lecture. It was Franklin who first systematically observed these facts, though they had been noticed long before by navigators. He recorded the temperature of the water as he left the American continent for Europe, and founded that it continued cold for a certain distance, then rose suddenly, and after a given time sank again to a lower temperature, though not so low as before. With a comprehensive grasp of mind characteristic of all his scientific results, he went at once beyond his facts. He inferred that the warm current, keeping its way so steadily through the broad Atlantic and carrying tropical productions to the northern shores of Europe, must take its rise in tropical regions, must be heated by a tropical sun. This was his inference to work it out. To ascertain the origin and course of the Gulf Stream has been, in a great degree, the task of the United States Coast Survey, under the direction of his descendant, Dr. Bach. We are now fairly in the tropics. The blades blow heavily, and yesterday was a dreary day for those unused to the ocean. The beautiful blue water of a peculiar metallic tint, as remarkable in color it seemed to me as the water of the Lake of Geneva, did not console us for the heavy moral and physical depression of seasick mortals. Today the world looks brighter. There is a good deal of motion, but we are more accustomed to it. This morning the lecture had, for the first time, a direct bearing upon the work of the expedition. The subject was, how to observe, and what are the objects of scientific explorations in modern times. My companions and myself have come together so suddenly and so unexpectedly on our present errand that we have had little time to organize our work. The laying out of a general scheme of operations is, therefore, the first and one of the most important points to be discussed between us. The time for great discoveries is past. No student of nature goes out now expecting to find new world, or looks in the heavens for any new theory of the solar system. The work of the naturalist in our day is to explore worlds the existence of which is already known, to investigate, not to discover. The first explorers, in the modern sense, were Humboldt in the physical world, Cuvier in natural history, Lavoisier in chemistry, Laplace in astronomy. They have been the pioneers in the kind of scientific work characteristic of our century. We who have chosen Brazil as our field must seek to make ourselves familiar with its physical features, its mountains and its rivers, its animals and plants. There is a change, however, to be introduced in our mode of work as compared with that of former investigators. When less was known of animals and plants, the discovery of new species was the great object. This has been carried too far and is now almost the lowest kind of scientific work. The discovery of a new species as such does not change a feature in the science of natural history any more than the discovery of a new asteroid changes the character of the problems to be investigated by astronomers. It is merely adding to the enumeration of objects. 
we should look rather for the fundamental relations among animals. The number of species we may find is of importance only so far as they explain the distribution and limitation of different genera and fami families, their relations to each other, and to the physical conditions under which they live. Out of such investigations there looms up a deeper question for scientific men, the solution of which is to be the most important result of their work in coming generations. The origin of life is the great question of the day. How did the organic world come to be as it is? It must be our aim to throw some light on this subject by our present journey. How did Brazil come to be inhabited by the animals and plants now living there? Who were its inhabitants in past times? What reason is there to believe that the present condition of things in this country is in any sense derived from the past? The first step in this investigation must be to ascertain the geographical distribution of the present animals and plants. Suppose we first examine the Rio San Francisco. The basin of this river is entirely isolated. Are its inhabitants, like its waters, completely distant from those of other basins? Are its species peculiar to itself, and not repeated in any other river of the continent? Extraordinary as this result would seem, I nevertheless, nevertheless expect to find it so. The next water basin we shall have to examine will be that of the Amazon, which connects through the Rio Negro with the Orinoco. It has been frequently repeated that the same species of fish exist in the waters of the San Francisco and in the, of those of Guiana and of the Amazons. At all events, our works on fishes constantly indicate Brazil and Guiana as the common home of many species, but this observation has never been made with sufficient accuracy to merit confidence. Fifty years ago, the exact locality from which any animal came seemed an unimportant fact in its scientific history, for the bearing of this question on that of origin was not then perceived. To say that any specimen came from South America was quite enough. To specify that it came from Brazil, from the Amazons, the San Francisco, or the La Plata seemed a marvelous accuracy in the observers. In the museum at Paris, for instance, there are many specimens entered as coming from New York or from Para, but all that is absolutely known about them is that they were shipped from those seaports. Nobody knows exactly where they were collected. So there are specimens entered as coming from the Rio San Francisco, but it is by no means sure that they came exclusively from that water basin. All this kind of investigation is far too loose for our present object. Our work must be done with much more precision. It must tell something positive of the geographical distribution of animals in Brazil. Therefore, my young friends who come with me on this expedition, let us be careful that every specimen has a label, recording locality and date, so secured that it shall reach Cambridge safely. It would be still better to attach two labels to each specimen, so that, if any mischance happens to one, our record may not be lost. We must not try to mix... We must try not to mix the fishes of different rivers, even though they flow into each other, but to keep our collections perfectly distinct. You will easily see the vast importance of thus ascertaining the limitation of species and the bearing of the results on the great question of origin. Something is already known. It is ascertained that the South American rivers possess some fishes peculiar to them. Were these fishes then created in these separate water systems as they now exist? or have they been transferred thither from some other waterbed? If not born there, how did they come there? Is there, or how there ever been, any possible connection between these water systems? Are there characteristic species repeated elsewhere? 
Thus we narrow the boundaries of the investigation and bring it, by successive approaches, near the ultimate question. But the first inquiry is, how far are species distinct all over the world, and what are their limits? Till this is ascertained, all theories about their origin, their derivation from one another, their successive transformation, their migration from given centers, and so on, are mere beating about the bush. I allude especially to the freshwater fishes, in connection with this investigation, on account of the precision of their boundaries. Looking at the matter theoretically without a positive investigation, I do not expect to find a single species of the lower Amazons above Tabatinga. I base this supposition upon my own observations from the Rhine, the Rhone, and the Danube. Most of them are not found in the lower course of those rivers. That again, certain species are found in two of these water basins, and do not occur in the third, and are inhabit only one, and are not to be met in the two others. The brook trout, for instance, is common to the upper course and the higher tributaries of all the three river systems, but does not inhabit the main bed of their lower courses. So it is, also, and in a more striking degree, with the Samling, the Huchin, is only found in the Danube. But the distribution of the perch family in these rivers is, perhaps, the most remarkable. The Zingle and the Schreitzer are only found in the Danube, while Asarina Cernua is found in the Danube as well as in the Rhine, but not in the Rhone, and Aspro Asper in the Danube, as well as in the Rhone, but not in the Rhine. The Sander is found in the Danube and the other large rivers of Eastern Europe, but occurs neither in the Rhine nor in the Rhone. The common perch, on the contrary, is found both in the Rhine and Rhone, but not in the Danube, which, however, nourishes another species of true perca, already described by Schaefer as perca vulgaris. Again, the pickerel, is common to all these rivers, especially in their lower course, and so is also the cusk. The special distribution of the carp family would afford many other striking examples, but they are too numerous and too little known to be used as an illustration here. This is among the most remarkable instances of what I would call the arbitrary character of geographical distribution, such facts cannot be explained by any theory of accidental dispersion, for the upper mountain rivulets in which these great rivers take their rise have no connection with each other, nor can any local circumstance explain the presence of some species in all three basins, while others appear only in one, or perhaps in two, and are absent from the third, or the fact that certain species inhabiting the headwaters of these streams are never found in their lower course, when the descent would seem so natural and so easy. In the absence of any positive explanation, we are, left to explain, we are left to assume that the distribution of animal life has primary laws as definite and precise as those which govern anything else in the system of the universe. It is for the sake of investigations of this kind that I wish our party to divide, in order that we may cover as wide a ground as possible, and compare a greater number of the water basins of Brazil. I wish the same to be done, as far as it may be, for all the classes of vertebrates, as well as for mollusks, articulates, and radiates. As we have no special botanist in the party, we must be content to make a methodical collection of the most characteristic families of trees, such as the palms and tree ferns. A collection of the stems of these trees would be especially important as a guide to the identification of fossil woods. Much more is known of the geographical distribution of plants than of animals, however. And there is, therefore, less to be done that is new 
in that direction. I'm going to stop there for now. I wish everyone a good night.